Welcome to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series, episode 4. On March 7th and March 8th, 2016, a team of Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek attorneys hosted the Experience Denver Transit Tour with the Regional Transportation Commission of Southern Nevada and nearly 50 community and business leaders from Southern Nevada. The transit tour allowed the Regional Transportation Commission to tour Denver's Regional Transportation District, including its light rail and commuter rail systems, and other major transit projects. It also offered participants the opportunity to hear from key city leaders, attorneys, and developers who played a role in bringing these developments to fruition. Our fourth panel discussion from the Experience Denver Transit Tour, hosted by Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek, The Fruits of Labor, Private Development as a Result of Investment in Infrastructure at DIA discusses new developments in the process of construction that are emerging as a direct result of Denver's investment in light rail and other modes of transportation. In this podcast, you'll hear key insights and commentary from moderator Carolyn White of Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek and our panelists, which included Jarrett Went, VP of Strategic Initiatives of Panasonic Enterprise Solutions, Ferd Bells, Senior Vice President of LC Full and Wider Inc., and John Potts, Director of Development at Den Real Estate. Thank you for listening to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. Visit www.bhfs.com for more information. Thank you all for coming here today, and I'm thrilled to be a part of this. I have been with Brownstein for about 13 years. I practice in land use, public-private partnerships, and government relations, which uh, is part of the reason I came to Brownstein. You may have seen our website or heard our tagline that Brownstein operates at the intersection of business law and politics. Uh, I have never seen a project that more operates at the intersection of business law and politics than the project we're going to talk to you about this afternoon, and we have a terrific panel to talk to you about that. Um, I'm really thrilled to have been a part of helping put this project together and work on some of the agreements behind the scenes, and um, really pleased to introduce to you this group of folks who are going to tell you how this project came to be uh, on, the pu- on the public sector side, what are the public investments that were needed, why they needed and wanted the, pu- the private side's partnership, and on the private side, why would you choose to locate in this particular location, why would you do all the extra things necessary to make it such a premier site, a premier location, and then obviously um, open it up to a Q&A from you folks here. So I'll introduce each of our panel members briefly. They each have a PowerPoint presentation for you. They each have said that they welcome your questions during the presentation if you'd like, or we also have reserved a little bit of time for Q&A at the end. So thanks again for being here and for giving me the opportunity to sit on this panel with these three folks, and let me tell you who they are. To my immediate right, and our first presenter is John Potts, who has more than 30 years of experience in land development, and I'm going to tell you a little bit about his private and corporate experience because it's like the who's who of the Fortune 500. With Exxon, American General, Howard Hughes Corporation, General Growth, Rio Tinto, and I just found out we have one thing in common. He served as manager of land servicing for the city of Calgary, where my sister-in-law lives. My husband's a Canadian, so another uh, little cool factoid there. Um, John has a a great presentation for you, and um, he has actually also worked on significant projects in Las Vegas, as well as other cities throughout the West, like San Diego, Salt Lake City, and, of course, Calgary, which is uh, North American West, if you will. 
Jarrett Went, immediately to his right, is the Vice President of Business Development and Strategic Initiatives for Panasonic Corporation. Um, prior to that, he was CEO of CPI International, a leading analytical and life sciences manufacturer. Jarrett leads Panasonic's Smart Cities Initiative, of which this project is a significant part and sort of the next major initiative. Um, he's going to talk to you a little bit about their history in smart and sustainable solutions, solar, battery storage, microgrids, traffic and mobility solutions, healthcare, and more. And all of those are components that we hope to incorporate into the project here at 61st and Pena, now called Pena Station Next. And then finally, uh, at the far right of the table is Ferd Bells, who is Senior Vice President in Charge of Real Estate for LC Full & Wider, Inc., the corporate entity for all of the Full & Wider family holdings. Um, uh, Ferd has a long history in the development business in Colorado and elsewhere. He's developed more than $1 billion of hotel and resort real estate nationally and internationally, uh, worked on projects including Marriott, Ritz-Carlton, the Pepsi Center in Denver. I don't know if you guys could see the Pepsi Center from where you went today, and the Tabor Center in Denver, also with a background in architecture and engineering. Um, Ferd, apparently, like me, is a chronic joiner because he has also served as chair of the Downtown Denver Partnership, chair of the board of the Auraria Foundation, current treasurer on the board of the Civic Center Conservancy, and on the board of the Metro State University Foundation, all terrific community and civic organizations here in Colorado. And Ferd has also been a frequent guest of Brownstein at our events at ICSC in Las Vegas, so maybe you might have seen him there. So with that, um, please help me welcome our panelists and then I'm going to turn it over to John. I've got about 10 or 12 slides, and I'll give you an overview of the, of the Denver real estate uh, program. Um, the airport, as you know, relocated when Stapleton closed back in, back in the 90s, and we now have just completed our 21st year. We are the largest airport uh, in the nation physically. We are 53 square miles and we have about 9,000 acres of real estate that we develop. And our charge here is to develop real estate that supports our aviation operation. Uh, everything we do is, is geared to support the aviation operation, hopefully lower gate fees and promote, uh, pr promote travel for the airlines. Uh, this is an oblique, as you can see, that gives you a pretty good view of the airfield and the surrounding real estate. As you can see, we... we um, uh, are privileged not to have a lot of for what an airport uh, has problems with, which is surrounding residential. So we are out. We've been we are out in Denver County and partially in Adams County. Again, it's 53 square miles. And for the first 20, 21 years, we've not done a lot of real estate development. We now have a great partner with Full and Wider, and as you saw, our Pena Station is probably our most prominent foray into the actual development of real estate thus far. 53 square miles, yeah, and 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 we have about between uh, about about 9,000 acres developable. The an IGA amendment, intergovernmental agreement amendment, just passed this November with about an 80% approval rating for Denver and Adams County, and that allows us to develop 1,500 acres of non-aviation related real estate in and around the airport. And heretofore. There has been some controversy over what kind of real estate we were allowed to develop, that most of it had to be aviation-related. Now we have 1,500 acres that we can do retail, mixed-use, and so we've got some exciting things planned for the next 20 to 60 years. And that 9,000 acres doesn't count the airfield. That's just real estate that we, we can go develop. 
What you see here, of course, is the airfield. You can see, uh, I think I don't have a pointer here, but you've got, uh, you can see Pena Boulevard, which leaves the airport. It's the only, one of the disadvantages we have is one of the things we want to address over the intermediate years to come is this single point of access that we have. So uh, we have a cul-de-sac. We have a 53-square-mile cul-de-sac. So we have uh, Pena Boulevard, which uh, is owned partially by the FAA. And so what we can do with it, how we finance it, uh, creates some real challenges for us, and we're, we're going through that right now. Uh, but you can see the Pena Boulevard as it, it goes out to the west and then turns south, and then you can also see where you were at uh, Pena Station where the Panasonic site is. Uh, this is, of course, a hotel. Did you all get to see the, the train station at the hotel? Okay. Again, uh, aerial uh, photography of... Um, our TOD sites and our, and our nodes. Um, the three TOD sites that we have are all along Pena Boulevard. The most prominent, of course, is, is, is Pena Station, Pena, Pena Station Next. It's 400 acres. I'll let the uh, Panasonic representative and Ferd talk about, um, about Panasonic in more detail. Um, but it is a large site for a TOD site, 400 acres, so we have some real opportunities that we're excited with our partner to, to develop that. Yes, sir? I'm sorry, a transit-oriented development. I apologize, yeah. So. Uh, this is a rendering that shows what the vision of uh, Pena Station next could be. It doesn't look like that today. I don't know if you noticed that when you were there, but uh, over the next few years, uh, we think we can pull this off. We're really truly blessed to have Panasonic, which uh, we're excited uh, with what they can do for us, not only at Pena Station, but our relationship with them in the airport and long-term. Um, again, this uh, announces what we were doing with with uh, Panasonic, and this is one of the other TOD sites we have. This is further south. This is right at the uh, confluence of I-70 and Pena Boulevard. It's about a 100-acre site we have with another developer in the city of Aurora. Uh, Paul's Corporation is also a well-known um, Colorado developer, and we have holdings there. This one has some implications in terms, like all like all projects around TOD, has some access issues we need to iron out. Uh, there were some glitches in the uh, uh, IGA amendment that we've got to clean up here that we're going to do in 2016 to bring this project along for development. But our, fo our focus right now and our commitment is with uh, Panasonic and Pena Station. Uh, this gives you the layout of how the, the TOD site works. Uh, as you'll find out as you begin to plan your site and, and the sites that you'll have the opportunity to develop, you'll have about a quarter of a mile radius that you'll be able to really focus on TOD walkability. In the case of Panasonic and others, we're much larger than that. So um, uh, how we address that is, is going to be where, where the detail comes in the land planning and the development. Again, 9,000 acres, if any of you guys uh, want to talk to our developer buddies in, uh, in Las Vegas, uh, we're in business. We've got land. We don't sell land. What's one of the interesting things is that uh, because our land is owned by the city and the county, what we do is uh, long-term land leases. And so uh, people would scold me when I first got here, say, you can't say sell. You can't say sell. We lease. I say, well, actually, we do sell. We sell lifestyle and we sell interest. How they take title is different. Uh, they don't get fee simple, uh, but they get a leasehold interest. But don't kid yourself, we're selling real estate. I'll take any questions. That just gives you a, a broad view 
of uh, what we're doing here at Denver. Uh, we've been here for 21 years now, but our, in, our real estate department is, is fairly new in terms of being aggressive and are taking ourselves to the market. And again, we want to publicly say we're very, very proud to have uh, our Full & Wider as our partner on Pena Station next, and we're very, very proud to have Panasonic as our lead tenant. I think Tina has a question. So the question was, what type of revenues were used to acquire the land? Are you talking about for Pena Station or for the airport? All of Pena Station, of course, isn't owned by the airport. The full and wider estate uh, has interest as well in their land they can sell. And so it's only the airport land that we have to do the long-term leases on. And that's because of the relationship with the FAA, plus it is uh, city and county land, and we just don't, we don't uh, provide fee simple title. And the funding was, it was a mixed bag, but it did have federal funds, FIA funds as well. Pena Boulevard has a federal money in it, which is complicated for us from the standpoint of how we have to um, control the traffic and um, fund its expansion. Because what we have with Pena Boulevard is a facility that's reaching capacity. It has some issues with it. But if if it were a developer-owned street or a city-owned street, there's things we can go do with it. We're prohibited from doing that on our own without FAA approval. And so we're working through that with the city of Denver and the county of Denver and the FAA right now. Yes, question. Thank you. The question is, have we had experience with leased land when it comes to the term of the lease? I said yes, only from the standpoint of I know what our terms and conditions are going to be for when it comes to the terms of the lease. I'm not old enough to have seen the end of a 99-year lease yet. Uh, but, but what we'll do is that, uh, and we're a little bit crippled here in Denver because um, currently right now in the city and county, if I were to lease you the land to go build a hotel on in Pena Station, uh, our current rules and regs state that not only do we own the land, we're going to give you the land lease, but you go build a building and we own that too. And so we're going through some code changes right now to ask that that be changed so that the developer can own the building itself. And we'll have that, we'll have that they can own that building through whatever the term of the lease is, 40, 50 years. And at the end of that lease, um, we'll have the option, it'll revert, it'll revert to the landowner. And so those, those costs of that building have to be amortized over that design life, which is, let's say it's 40 or 50 years. You've got to make sure that rental rates and everything are paid for at that point in time. It does, um, as, as FERD understands and we understand, how you structure the deal and how you convince a developer that that's worth doing does have some complications and you have some takeout provisions that you can do and so forth. But uh, it's something I think we can manage our way through. But the building does revert to the land at the end of the lease. And that's, that's pretty typical throughout continental U.S. Okay, so I have one more question for you, John, if you don't mind, before you move on. Just because I think um, folks might not be familiar with it, could you speak briefly to how the 1,500 acres that you have available for development in and around the airport fits into the larger vision for Aerotropolis and a little bit about the intergovernmental cooperation there? I, th I think that would be relevant. You have multiple governmental agencies here right. whose cooperation is obviously going to be required. 
I'll take a two-second stab at it, and then I'd love to hear what John says. So um, the, when the airport was first built in this location, in order to be able to build it there, the city and county of Denver had to enter into an intergovernmental agreement with Adams County because the property was outside of Denver's boundaries. And Adams County was concerned that Denver would develop the airport and get all of the economic benefit, uh, you know, for all the jobs and, and development and creation and so on. And so the original intergovernmental agreement that allowed the airport to be built in its current location provided a lot of restrictions on what Denver could do, including limiting them to airport-related development only and restricting some areas from development entirely and allocating who would receive the tax revenues from different types of development. So what John was referring to in terms of the ballot issue that just went to the ballot, several years ago the city and county of Denver began developing a long-term vision of what the development could be in and around the airport, and they called it Aerotropolis. Um, the, the agreement we did. So the vision came first, and then in, in sort of talking about the vision, it became clear that that vision could not be achieved without amending the agreement. The original agreement had to go to the voters because it was a county boundary adjustment, and in Colorado law, that has to go to the voters. So the amendment to the agreement also had to go to the voters when Adams County and Denver agreed to amend their original agreement to allow greater development, greater economic development, and greater revenue sharing in and around the airport. They entered into the agreement, and then they put it on the November ballot to be ratified by the voters. I think in the 80s, there, there was that situation, and they resolved it and entered into the agreement. And I think since then, it would be fair to say that there's been a very high degree of intergovernmental cooperation that has enabled the airport to develop the way it's developed, that has enabled this kind of private development like what the Full and Wider Group has done and, and some of the other ancillary development that you see around the airport. After, after 21 years, we came to violent agreement. We finally agreed with the IGA amendment that we can develop property, and uh, I say agreement because it passed with close to 80 percent, yeah, in, in in every jurisdiction, the county and the city as well. So, uh, Aerotropolis, uh, the city grows, the city builds an airport. As the city continues to grow, the airport moves out of the city. The airport becomes the city, and so uh, you have these. Um, airports around the world, uh, Schiphol and Amsterdam and Munich and Frankfurt that are uh, economic engines from the standpoint of producing business that are all aviation related. And probably the, the most crystal clear for all of us to understand would be the Louisville or Memphis where you have UPS and FedEx. And they've located there specifically to be near the airport. And so when you have businesses that need to be near the airport if you're transporting human organs or things that, that have a high, a, a tight expiration date, minutes count close to the airport. And so we have the cold, the cold chain uh, that is around the world allows flowers to be grown in, in uh, Africa and in the florist shop within 24 hours. And so uh, what we have recently just, we have, it's not finalized yet, we did a Aerotropolis visioning study and what we have concluded at least for us here and I think it's a good news story is that we could probably have 6,000 jobs uh, if we have business as usual but if we target Aerotropolis and our funding for infrastructure and target industries and sell ourselves that though that 6,000 could change into 72,000 in the same time frame which is about 2040 and so for us the Aerotropolis is about 
amalgamation of businesses that need to need transportation infrastructure and we want to make it as easy as we can for them to be able to be prosperous and do well there's another question over here uh, there was a, was a book called Aerotropolis, which is written by John Casarda, who co-authored it. And the question is, is that book, uh, do we rely on that book? And is it an inspiration for us? And to some extent it is. Um, the author of that book was uh, recently on the land planning team that made a pitch for uh, to do the land plan for all of our 9,000 acres. I won't tell you which team it is uh, uh, because we haven't announced it yet, and I won't tell you whether they won or not. Uh, but but they are interested in, in Denver. And we, we do um, target and benchmark ourselves against other airports. For us, probably DFW is, is close because of the size. There are some uh, contrast, contrasting differences that we are different from them. But in terms of land mass and relatively newness, uh, that's an airport that, that we pay, pay close attention to. One of the other questions, I'll, I'll pa- pass it off to Jarrett in just a second, is that um, in order to pass the IGA amendment, I think one of the wise things that was done is that uh, on the land that is in Adams County that's on the airport, when that land gets developed, um, they get the tax revenue from that. And, and some of the others, we split the tax revenue with them. So what we have done is aligned our interests so that as the airport does well, so do the surrounding municipalities. I'm glad you mentioned that. I was going to highlight that. Good. Uh, yeah. One more question, and then let's go to Jarrett. We don't really call it an inland port. We did at Calgary. Um, sort of looked at ourselves as, as an inland port uh, there because we had rail transportation, uh, strong rail transportation with both Canadian Pacific and um, Canadian National, and, and, a, and a good airport with a long runway. Here we haven't really targeted that. We've our focus has been because we don't. What we need to do probably is that what we will do is in this master plan is strengthen the rail connection to the airport. And I think if we were able to strengthen the air connection to the rail port and truly become intermodal from a freight standpoint, then yes, we would probably want to start looking at something like that. Plus, a lot of the fortunes of how aviation, how how we. Um, can be viewed is the uh, as flight technology has changed with the range of the jets now changing and and our direct flight to Tokyo and a direct flight to Munich. Uh, I think that from that standpoint, we need to revisit um, where we are with uh, an inland port. Sure. All right. All right. So I guess I'll switch it up a little bit because I'm assuming why most of, if not all of you, are here is the how. And uh, I think we've kind of danced around. You've been toured through Denver. I think you've seen some various unique aspects of Denver. But why Panasonic chose Denver after we we went through 25 cities or so, selecting where we want to move our enterprise solution headquarters to, there were some key points that separated Denver. And and I'll get to the slides. But this is is really just going to give you a visual of what our headquarters is going to look like. But the discussion today I thought was more appropriate on both the how and to this gentleman's point, the why. I mean, it is about creating a smarter, more sustainable city that can't center around just an airport and that can't center around developers and it can't center around just the city. So the unique aspects that allowed us to kind of take our many years of of experience, and most of you, I'll I'll go through this so you can kind of get a visual, but um, you've already seen this slide here on uh, what we're looking at. 
obviously we're not your parents Panasonic, uh, less than 7% of our revenue is, is consumer electronics. So that's, uh, we're a $70 billion organization and 7% is consumer electronics, which is probably surprising to most of us. So we clearly do large venue audio visual. Uh, it's in our wheelhouse. Uh, it's things that are, that kind of, we don't put our name to, but we're behind the scenes creating, uh, activated environments in New York city and, and the world over. We have, Incredible capabilities in the B2B and, and then obviously onto consumers. But uh, one of the things that maybe is a, a appropriate for today is, is that we have such deep-seated roots in automotive at 70-plus per share of everything that's customer-facing within an automotive industry. We have 90-plus percent share of the avionics markets. Again, everything that's customer-facing, interactive, et cetera. So we've, we've got our fingerprints on those. But more importantly, we've got a living, breathing, functioning smart, sustainable town in Fujisawa in Japan. It took eight years to build, but the purpose of that was to show that we had a proof of concept internally. We had been developing a number of smart and sustainable initiatives and technologies over the years, and it just so happened that we had this acreage in Fujisawa so that we could drop in our various advancements in technologies. And I would dare say that the tours that we've had with the Denver representatives and Full and Widers and uh, certainly the Denver airport um, to go over and see a living, breathing, smart, sustainable town, which currently has a roughly 400 families living in, and by 18, 2018, it'll have 1,500. So as we kind of look through our, our capabilities, and, and again, I don't want to spend too much time on this. This is a Panasonic presentation, and you guys are beyond that. So I wanted to get more into the how and the why. But clearly, we have some execution capabilities in what we've defined as our City Now initiative um, which has mean our, our initiative and our division that's cross-pollinating across multi-divisions and multinationally so that we can impact a smart city in ways that uh, perhaps we can articulate and advance quicker because of our engineering prowess and because in the IoT, we are the T. So why Denver? Let's get into the meat and potatoes of why we're here. So obviously, you know, they responded. We went on tours. As we got through it, the entrepreneurial spirit and the city and state leadership was there. So I think for this group, what's, re what's, what's relevant? It's a cross-political environment, meaning leave your shit at the door. And are we serious about this? And are we serious about breaking down some barriers and not having it politicized? And are we really interested in moving the needle forward in considerable, meaningful, measurable ways that are sustainable? Yes or no? And the answer in Denver, the words were yes. And uh, our estimation was that they meant every bit of it. And they showed us by way of not only Governor Hickenlooper, but Mayor Hancock, um, really an overwhelming show of support in saying, hey, I'm a, I'm a Democratic mayor and my chief of staff is a Republican. We don't care. We've got initiatives. We've got sustainability goals. We're a growing city. We don't know what to do with ourselves, uh, quite frankly, in every way, shape, or form that's smart and sustainable. How do we move the needle? Okay, we're here. Uh, we're listening. Uh, obviously, convenient to an international airport. Uh, you know, obviously, you know, this microphone aside, Denver Airport is world class, as you guys, I, I think, can know. <laughs> you, can, you can imagine. This is a world class airport, and our ability to, to kind of have both employees and clients in and out in such an easy, it's two hours each direction, um, it, was, it was easy for us to make that choice. Uh, there's obviously a sports climate, uh, which back to our other wheelhouse and audiovisual is is nice. Um, but let's get into the real meat and potatoes. And Las Vegas and Nevada broadly is no different. 
we've got superior greenfield and brownfield environments, which are essential. So I'm going to break it down a little bit differently. And if, if it's easier to take notes, because this is going to go in one ear and out the other, I'm sure. But I'll break it down into categories. If Panasonic, as an example, and we're one of, I, I suppose, a host that are capable, although we would dare say that we're most capable, and does that, does that mean I'm out of time? Uh, so in a greenfield environment, which is the 400-acre TOD, what that allows, which you guys have in Nevada, is an empty blank palette to say we are not beholden to the brownfield, which is to say an urban environment, which is far more difficult to navigate, but we can actually have a living, breathing, working, proof-of-concept environment where we can drop various technologies, advancements, initiatives, pilots, etc., without having it really have an effect on the, on the citizens, nor do you really have to navigate the infrastructure. So that's what the forward-thinking Fulton Widers and Denver airports and the city of Denver of the world with the Aerotropolis and this amazing chunk of land provides so that we can have this environment and where it's appropriate, which we dare say is often, it can then be advanced into a cityscape or a brownfield environment. So it's a key component of being able to achieve because as you know, people need to see something. They need to see the needle moving forward. And that includes a mayor. I mean to do something and you've got something that is maybe outside the city politics, outside that city. If it reaches $100,000, it has to go off RFP. There's a process. Great. But here we've got a private investor or a development group or a consortium, and we can move the needle forward much quicker. I'll say, let's, let's add the, main, the major game changer, that light rail. So access to public transit in a TOD, transit-oriented development, or any really smart development is essential. We have to stop fooling ourselves to the gentleman's point right there. Let's do it. You have to put in public transportation. You have to connect people in different ways than just in their vehicle. And you have to have that access be simple, easy, and real-time data all to either push to their devices or displayed. You have to have that as part of your cityscape. Otherwise, we're gonna, it's going to be business as usual. And I always use the example of Atlanta. They had a traffic problem in the 90s, and they went from four lanes in one-way direction to eight. And for six years or five years, it was glorious. And now what? It's one of the worst traffics, uh, traffic systems we have in the United States because of that, right? It's not forward thinking. Sorry, Atlanta. So you saw, you saw what, and so part of their, their pitch was, look, we really have invested, and you guys have seen the investments on the RTD and CDOT side to bring light rail public transit to the fray. So there was a huge separating factor. Um, obviously, it's an out, outdoor active lifestyle, which really, again, supports that last mile and how we're going to address people's, eh, you know, I don't know, I, I don't know how I'm going to get to the train or the bus or et cetera. And we really have an active community, which we thought would support us. That's what will be what you just saw. I think there's four walls up right now. And this is just put a visual to it, but this is just a little example of what we're, we're going to achieve there couple views. But let's get, so I'll stop there because the rest of the slides are really the architectural piece, which maybe one gentleman in the crowd would care about. Let's talk about how we've designed our service design model. And service design, for those of you who don't know or don't care, I'll break it down for you. Service design is the reason why you do something. It's the citizen engagement piece, and it's the model that you can manipulate a system, complexity management at the highest degree, structure them in an organized way so that you have the correct players at the highest level, 
having a clean line of sight on how you move the needle forward. So what Mr. Mayor did was signed a proclamation, a mayoral proclamation, which happens all day, every day. But the important aspect here was is that it was specific to outline the four pillars of what we felt like was a smart city or a city now approach. First and foremost, housing utilities. Second, transportation and mobility. Third, city services and security. And fourth was community well-being. Why? Under each of those pillars is a host of technologies and advancements and potential pilots that you can load up into those pillars. And while you have a city that's willing to say, I'm appointing a co-chair to each of these pillars, which Mr. Mayor did, per our request (laughs) in the overall service design, it allows clean access to decision makers so that you can say, we want to institute a microgrid, the first of its kind in Colorado. Partnership with Denver Airport, partnership with XL Energy, partnership with Panasonic. Can we achieve this? The answer is yes. We did it. Because those three people are in the room, and those three people are on the co-chairs. That's the design that allows, and we'll go into transportation and mobility because it's no different. If we're really designing how you have real-time access to information, traffic data, V2V, V2X, any of these advanced technologies tying people together, you need to have a streamlined complexity management process. Period, end of story. That won't happen because it's just going to get right back into the city or mechanism, and it's no offense. It happens in every city. So our approach was in this four-pillar process, having a proclamation, having an official technology partnership, which is one of many that the city has, but it's allowed us that type of, of access to introducing technologies, and absolutely some of them are going to be in the RFP process. And if I always, I always say if you look at the fan of what makes a smart and sustainable city, we probably play in this sliver over here, which is great. And because of the access and the service design, we may learn our 4,000 engineers who are saying, what else do we need to do? We may be able to move that to here. But the service design is about chunking these complexity management pieces that are all over the place. It's like spaghetti. Organizing them into clear, concise, structured pillars, having weekly workshops or biweekly workshops and monthly co-chair meetings where those decision makers can then say, What's, what do we have? What have you vetted? And they can have clean line of sight on those initiatives, technology advancements, or KPIs within the city so they can move that needle collectively forward and it has a cadence. Otherwise, for fear, uh, we said we've got 30 years of experience and we've done it kind of tertiarily, but we've never had that clean line of a service design approach and such a ready, willing city and government saying, yes, please, we're in, we understand we've got complexity problems, we understand that we want to move the needle forward, we don't clearly understand how that's going to happen. And you can tell, I mean, Ferd is going to take it from here, but you can kind of tell the kind of collaborative environment that it requires, but our contention is, is that it doesn't necessitate that every time. It's just that you need some proof of concepts. And if Denver is a proof of concept, that you can take a fairly large city with 100,000 residents moving into Colorado each year and some really, really troubling confines within our brownscape and move the needle collectively forward with these type of partnerships, I would dare say other cities can fall in line. And I think what we're all looking for is some answer to the complexity because we all want to do it. But smart cities mean something to everybody different in this room, for sure. But as we define it, and I'll close it with saying this, and I'll take questions. We've been working on the definition, the city services that are available, and the sustainability goals that are available, connected with the citizen engagement and knowledge of all of those services and initiatives 
that bridge is smart. So if you've got a connected real-time citizen that's engaged and understands how to fully utilize the city services, and that includes transportation, that includes the community well-being aspects, and we can get into specifics, but that bridge, if maximized, is as smart as the city gets because you're maximizing the services that are available today, and with technology, and, the, and that, as that curve ad- advances, those citizens and engagement move with that curve, and you've got a smart city. So that's it. Oh, yeah, sure. So one thing I think it might be useful for the group to know, um, my understanding is, and maybe you can elaborate on this, one of the reasons Panasonic was so interested in this location and this community wasn't just the 400 acres at Pena Station and the opportunity to develop proof of concept for certain technologies, but rather the opportunity to integrate those into the city at large and to help the city provide those services better for other citizens, you know, who don't happen to live in the 400 acres at 61st and Pena. And so I think you said we could talk in more detail, but could you give an example of, I mean, we've talked about wayfinding, security, uh, uh, traffic management, uh, driver's license renewals. Could you give some example of the kinds of things we're talking about that are going to be integrated here that then potentially also could be part of the larger Denver metro area? I'll take it in order of importance. I don't know if there's any going to, there's going to be any more significant impact on moving your city forward on smart and sustainable goals than an energy plan and a transportation mobility plan. The rest, while impactful for the citizenry, those two are just monumental. So when you dive into the specifics, obviously achieving a microgrid, which utilizes, for those of you who don't know, let's delve into it just briefly. If you're an energy company, a large-scale energy provider, and you have solar, it's kind of like... It's not necessarily the devil. It's just, what do I do with this? I don't know how much is coming in. I don't know when it dips. It's unpredictable and unreliable. And as an energy company, I need to know because I've got, and, you, and when you go down to an energy company, they literally map where humans move from the morning to the night and then back to their homes. And they literally have to shift energy, obviously, and follow humanity. Well, if you've got these spikes while it's sunny and dips unbeknownst because the clouds come over, you've got a problem as an energy company. I think most forward-thinking energy companies, and I have to say, I have to sing the praises of Excel, and I'm not drinking the Kool-Aid. These guys are the real deal. They understand that. They just wanted to have a way of managing that as it comes in. You guys in Nevada, holy Lord, there's an opportunity everywhere you look there. Energy costs are so low but that's incongruous with sustainability. It doesn't matter necessarily what the price point is in a snapshot. What's the long-term plan? And the long-term plan from Excel's perspective was battery storage mixed in with a microgrid along, uh, out, that surrounds our TOD essentially allows a consistent bandwidth of energy to be supplied vis-a-vis a microgrid. Battery storage backs up when the sun's down, sun's up, and it, it monitors it, and it organizes it, and it makes it so that it's level in a simple form. So that's a specific example of, of something that's, that's going to translate, because once we got PUC approval and that says proof of concept, we can move that into either solar farms or other substantial megawatt opportunities using a microgrid. So that's one. Transportation mobility is, is another one we talked about, and obviously transformational in V2V and V2I and V2X. If we, if we figure out, which we're going to, how to implement pilots of consequence showing that what we've been deploying for seven years in Japan translates into America, we've, we're off to the races. So that's a to be continued. And I'll say lastly, just for, 
for that biometric reading and something that we've talked about that hits home. You know, in a, in a product like, like Panasonic has an on for care, is, is a, it's an in-home biometric reading where you don't have to go to your doctor's office for rudimentary follow-ups, for checking out prescriptions, et cetera. The point is, is that maybe that's in, that's in the community well-being pillar, but we're doing this out at our development at the TOD, and we've got a community center there, and we're, we're really forward-thinking about how that can affect the home, how it can affect families. And I'll, I'll circle back to why it's even more effective in, this, in these type of developments. As we age as a population, and we have more baby boomer, boomers that are aging than obviously ever, they don't necessarily want to be sent out to pasture anymore. So that was the dream back in the day is, is that, you know, you leave outside the city and you kind of go. Now these guys have disposable income. They still want to go to restaurants. They still want to be engaged. They don't want to necessarily not see any young people. These type of developments are absolutely what people want. And when you can blend taking care of people in a way that solves some transportation or mobility issues in the home and allows their family to have access to the biometric readings, you're starting to address and make it smart while you're accomplishing some of the, the key KPIs within the city. So uh, those are some examples. Yes, ma'am? So it, without a light rail, how would a company like Panasonic look at Nevada? I will tell you this. Uh, our, our corporate headquarters in, in North America... It utilizes 85-plus percent public transportation for our employees. It was absolutely critical for us to find some place that had at least a vision or a plan so that we could walk the walk. Uh, it, none of this matters. I mean, none of it matters. A proclamation, a pro, none of it matters unless you walk the walk. And so I can speak on behalf of Panasonic. It was critical. Not necessarily that it was going to be in April, but that we were actually had a plan that was going to come to fruition so that we could have our employees, clients, customers, et cetera, have access to some form of public transportation that was easy. And I, I might add to that, if I could, that um, our firm does a lot of work with um, corporate relocating, corporate headquarters site selection in the economic development space. And we just represented Charles Schwab in choosing um, Lone Tree south of the city center in Denver as a regional headquarters. And uh, I suspect if they were here, they would answer that question exactly the same. It was a very critical consideration for them. And their decision-making centered around their partnership with that city as it related to the investments in the specific light rail station that they wanted to be next to. Yeah, there's a really cool visual that we pull up regarding this where it's like, you know, to transport 5,000 people, here are the 5,000 cars. If they were to car, car share, boom. If they were to take bus, boom. If they were to take light rail, boom. And it's unbelievable. Like, it's visual, right? So anybody else? Yes, sir? A hundred percent. I think we've got where we turned 100 uh, in 2018. And I believe we've never, since the inception of being re uh, awarded eco-responsible, never not had the highest level platinum achieved. So we walked the walk. There's no doubt about it. Absolutely. And, and I'll tweak it only. I'll say what we are operating here in Denver. Housing and utilities, transportation and mobility, city services and security, like smart street lamps, Right, as an example of something that you can implement, you have to change from incandescent to LED. You climb the pole, make a smart decision, make them technology advanced, eyes on, snow removal, blah, blah, blah. And the fourth is community well-being. I will only tweak the first pillar slightly as we've kind of gotten better is I would separate out housing, offices, buildings from utilities and energy because 
as I said, I don't know if there's any two more impactful than energy and utilities. And I think it's, it's in and of itself, it requires a robust plan and partnership with utility scale providers. Right. Uh, one more, and then let's uh, uh, ask our last panelist to present. Please go ahead. I will tell you in my experience for, at the firm, and also I serve on the statewide economic development um, board, and we... Oh, sorry. The question was, uh, what are the other top three things that corporate head uh, corporations are looking for when they do site selection and, and relocating headquarters? And um, I was mentioning I serve on the statewide economic development board as well, and we talk a lot about that in that forum, and I would say three common things come out, um, and they're not the things you think. Uh, one of them is, in fact, transportation and mobility, just like um, Jarrett was saying. The other two, I think, mostly have to do with things like uh, lifestyle and opportunity for their employees, and that's closely tied with the ability to attract and retain the right kind of workforce. Uh, depending on your business, you might have a different idea about what that is, but a large part of it has to do with millennials, um, the next generation workforce. Um, and, and the third thing I think really has a lot to do with a uh, collaborative, cooperative, and receptive governmental and regulatory framework. So um, not so much which political party, but the fact that whoever the powers that be are, are want you in their city, act like they want you in their city, and are willing to do what it takes to get you to come to their city. And, and that also goes along with the regulatory framework affecting the business in question. A lot of us think in economic development that it's about incentives. And sometimes you need that to kind of round out the package to make it work. But that's usually not one of the top three. I'll just add one more thing to that is, is that with such a large growing population of millennials and whatever the subset of that is going to be, there is an inordinate percentage that are completely disinterested in driver's licenses. So if you're to attract that generation of very thoughtful thinkers that you want to, you've got to have a transportation plan that doesn't include a car. So, Thank you, Ferd. Well, welcome to Denver. Um, I've been in Denver since 1980, and I've seen it grow <laughs> amazingly, and I think you saw a lot of it uh, today in, in downtown. Uh, interestingly, as a side note, I'm also a partner with some of uh, the folks you met at Union Station, and, and that was another unique uh, opportunity. I think what something that Denver has done well throughout the years is public-private partnerships. There's been many, many public-private partnerships, and I think it's key to how uh, development will uh, progress over the subsequent years. It's, it's, you got to have the, the city. You also have to have the private side very engaged. So I, I throw that in as a recommendation. So really, there's four partners. Uh, there is uh, Denver International Airport, but also the city and county of Denver. Uh, unlike some um, airports, uh, the, city, the Denver airport is actually owned by the city. I know DFW is actually a separate authority, and I don't know how it is in Vegas, but it really uh, helped that uh, the, the city and Denver were really uh, in sync and, and won in terms of all of our negotiations, and I believe all the negotiations with Panasonic. Full and Wider is 112 years old. Um, the original founder, uh, Cal Fullenweider I, started assembling this land in the late 1800s. People think uh, he was a land speculator because in the 1980s when the airport moved out there, people were grousing him like, 
this guy's just in it for the money. So he really did envision the, the Wright brothers and airports happening to border, be able to invest in land out to the airport. It was controversial in the 80s in terms of how this airport came together. So kudos to him, but I don't think he made a very good uh, return on investment on a yearly basis. Um, Panasonic uh, has been key, and uh, they joined us in December of 2014 and really helped us move the bar. Fujisawa is an example, as uh, Jared had mentioned, and, and really the, his four, and I would agree there's five pillars, is really what's been driving uh, the vision at, uh, at Pena Station next. So I think you know that uh, we are on the line out from uh, the uh, airport, opens April 22nd. And we're all very excited about it. Uh, you will be able to get from our site to downtown in 30 minutes. You'll be able to get from our site to the airport in five minutes, and obviously 35 minutes for the entire entire trip. We're surrounded by great neighborhoods, uh, which is really important because uh, for years there were no neighborhoods out here, and, and so nobody came. It was wheat field, and now there's plenty of infrastructure. The arsenal, uh, wildlife across the way, I don't know if you noticed that, but it's uh, 30,000 acres and you will be able to see the mountains forever. So the views are great, the visibility is great. It's approximately 400 acres, it really is a mixed use. So Jared threw in the office component. We are really looking at having office and uh, jobs and people be at our site. So if you don't want to get in your car, we'll also have retail, eventually we'll have uh, dining, and we'll also have uh, groceries. So really you can stay with on the site, uh, open space, parks, uh, complete mix of uses. If you want to get in, uh, go somewhere, get on the train. Uh, come downtown, go to a baseball game, uh, go to a football game, go to a, to a Rockies game, if you can put up with the Rockies. Uh, but that's that's another story. <laughs> I'm a Cardinals fan. So <laughs> anyway, uh, and as Jared mentioned, uh, we're planning on a 1.5 megawatt uh, solar array. What he didn't mention was Panasonic manufactures 75% of the uh, of the batteries um, in, in, the, in uh, the world, right? Lith Lithium-ion batteries in the world. They're partners with Tesla on the uh, $5 billion plant in uh, Nevada. So, um, and it's key for, what the, for the microgrid. So Full and Whiter owns uh, really about 800 acres, but the lower 400 is what uh, we're dealing with in terms of the uh, Pena Station next. You can see Panasonic's uh, number three on that map. Uh, adjacent to it is a 220-unit uh, uh, apartment complex that will start uh, development in the fall. It will have 20% of it as affordable housing, which is 80% of AMI. Uh, we and the city are committed to uh, an affordable com component. The city is very committed to it around uh, light rail stations, uh, so people don't have to have a car and they don't have to spend all that money on transportation. So uh, we will continue to do affordable housing throughout this development. You can see the, the solar field, and it, it does tie into the, uh, into the battery system and the microgrid. Really, why are we here, <laughs> and why is Panasonic here? They're really, the, the genesis is the airport, a $26 billion venture 
the flight to Tokyo was obviously key, I think, for Panasonic. It, the international flights are extremely important uh, for business. It's amazing, but I think DIA is, what is it, like equidistance between uh, Munich and, um, uh, and Tokyo and, uh, I think, uh, Brazil. Frankfurt, Tokyo, and Brazil. So it's, it's very well located. It's only half built out, six runways. We can go to uh, uh, 12 runways. We can go to 100 million passengers. And probably as important, and maybe this is similar in, in Vegas, is we have the airspace. Um, you go back to Newark, where <laughs> Panasonic's uh, uh, North America headquarters is, even if you could build more runways, there's just not enough room in the air. Uh, and so that's going to be a real uh, key for us as, we, as the airport grows. So where global business takes flight, um, Denver is attractive for a lot of reasons. The lifestyle of the 100,000 people moving here a year, probably half of them are millennials. And, and I think you kind of alluded to it, Carolyn, but the other thing that uh, along with lifestyle that, that companies are looking for is talent. And talent is so key now. And, and part of what Panasonic, and I won't speak too much for you, but I've heard uh, Jim Doyle, your boss, say is, we've got to create an environment where these people want to live, where they want to be, and they want to be part of. So that's part of the vision of Pena uh, Station Next. So what is it? It's transit, uh, a key component. Connected. There's a lot of ways to be connected. Vibrant. We want to make sure that it's truly mixed-use, walkable. We have shops. We have uh, what we're working on is a festival street. Uh, it's, it's a catalyst for this region. We're only 400 acres, but there's probably 40,000 acres of, of grassland out here that can be developed, and, and really we want to it's one of the few areas left in Denver that can truly expand and sustainable. So what is part of the connected? We're connected to DIA. We're connected to uh, downtown. We're multimodal. We're planning for bicycles, buses, transit, automobiles. But we're also planning for uh, smart cars. Uh, we're also connected digitally. Um, we are putting in uh, 12 four-inch uh, diameter conduits underneath almost all the major streets so we can run as much fiber as you'd ever want to do. So the infrastructure is very, very important. Uh, it's important for Panasonic to never go down. They're running screens all over the world. Not only do they build the screens, they run them. <laughs> from, they're going to run it from their uh, network operating center. So not only can they not go down from the electrical, uh, so therefore the batteries, they can't go down from a fiber perspective. So we have redundancy on uh, both of those levels. Sustainable, uh, again, the solar, the battery backup. We are uh, a minimum of lead silver for all of our, um, uh, all of our buildings. And uh, the electric part is part of the grid. Excel has been fantastic. We're a pilot uh, a study project for them, but we'll make it scalable so every house and every business in our community can have battery backup. What does that mean? Not only the redundancies, but they don't have to spend money in generators. So big companies come in here, they can save costs, and, and they can participate in the vision. We also have... Uh, uh, regional detention ponds, we manage the water, so each site doesn't have to have their own uh, facilities. We're working with Colorado State University, how to integrate some, um, some potential farming and urban farms into it, so we can start having farm-to-table. We can have co-ops so the people live here can, can grow their own food. 
and community. Um, we're going to have a ubiquitous Wi-Fi. We're, we're going to have free Wi-Fi for everybody anywhere where they want to uh, go within it. The public spaces, we have parks, we have festival streets, and, and we are building a, a wellness center. Uh, Panasonic is very involved in this. Uh, we are uh, in the process of hiring an advisor as to what that wellness center is. We're, we're really trying to think outside the box. Um, obviously, it's health care, but it's really also health. Um, how can we get make sure our people are don't have to go to health care? How do we keep them healthy? How do we give them classes so they can learn? It'll probably be about a 100,000-square-foot building, probably have about a 40,000-square-foot health club. Uh, we're working with uh, uh, a health care provider. We're also u- working with uh, UC, University of Colorado Health. We want to have it also as available to the airport. The airport has 35,000 employees. So they can get on the train, come down and work out, see their doctor, um, and and get back on the train within uh, that short period of time. Is that a question all the way in the back, sir? Okay. Yes, ma'am. Oh, uh, what is the local average median income um, in Denver? For a family of four, I think it's about sixty-two thousand dollars. We were not required, but we worked for, with CHAFA, which is Colorado Housing, Housing and, Finance, and Finance Authority, and they're providing some funding to be able to uh, facilitate that. Yes, sir. So how does churches and schools, uh, in, in terms of a use, so in, in terms of schools, we're in the, uh, the Denver Public School District. And there's, a, there's two communities, uh, Reunion and um, Green Valley Ranch. And Green Valley Ranch has about currently about 5,000 rooftops going to 10,000. Uh, and they are about a mile away from us. In fact, right now, they're, they're building just this across 56 from us. And so they have uh, allocated a significant amount of their land for schools and been working with Denver Public Schools to facilitate. We will probably have about... Oh, maybe 1,500 residences, uh, and there will be some families, but we've been working closely with Green Valley Ranch. Yeah, you don't have a car. Yeah, actually, in the city and county, the Denver Public School does still run buses. And, and churches are an allowed use by right in every zone district? No. So how was the land originally assembled? Um, the Fulton Wider family literally assembled the land um, starting in the 1880s through the, um, through the Depression, and at one point had 30,000 acres. Of that, 20,000 was condemned for the airport uh, and still has 10,000 acres, of which we still have about 8,000 that we are developing. So it was one family. You didn't have to assemble. Correct. It was one Light family. rail came to them. <laughs> Took them a long time, but... <laughs> Would you like to thank me and jo- join me in thanking our panel? <laughs> thank you for listening to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. Visit www.bhfs.com for more information.